Hi, everybody. Welcome to Tech Tuesday on INE Live. I'm your host, Katherine Brown. We have a great show today. We are talking about real-world application of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Instructors Brooke Seahorn and Kristen Day will join us in just a second. But first, as we do each week, want to let you know we are streaming live across social media platforms right now, including LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. We've designed this so you can get involved and engage with us here in the studio, but also with each other in chat. So we'd love for you to, to talk to each other and get involved, get to know each other. Our team is monitoring all the chats. If you have a comment, just drop it in there. If you have a question, go ahead and put a cue at the beginning of that so we can find those questions easily. We'll get to as many as we can today. Would love to hear from all of you as we talk with Brooks and Kristen. Brooks Seahorn, a lot of you probably know him. He's been with INE since April as a full-time AWS specialist. He comes to INE direct from Amazon, where he was technical curriculum developer and technical trainer for Amazon Web Services. He graduated from Auburn University, but We'll forgive him for that. Go dogs, Brooks. With that, I'll send it your way. And yeah, today's show is all about AI and ML. And specifically what we're going to be doing is, for somebody like myself particularly, who is a developer, an architect, when we start looking at AI, ML, it looks like such a just a difficult, dark place to figure out. So that's why we've got Kristen on. She is the lead data scientist at her organization for over, and pulling in data from over 120 different manufacturing facilities and offices from all over the world with a specific focus on the application of AI and ML within applications. She's been practicing these dark arts since 2015. Ladies and gentlemen, recovering attorney Kristen Day. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Brooks. Sure. Did I miss anything? Anything you wanted to add? No, I, I think you covered it. Um, we do handle a ton of data at my organization, um, and it can be anything from manufacturing optimizations to forecasting for finance, uh, just across the board, anything you can think of, we handle it. Cool. Very cool. Well, listen, let me start off with a fun question. And, and I say this is a fun question because I ended up discussing this a lot with folks at Amazon because there's always that sort of that ethical issue of trying to figure out how can I use these sort of technologies and not let it get away from me? Can you talk to us about, just from this high level before we dig in, what is really the difference between, say, having 100 people on light poles watching the crowd and using something like AIML to watch a crowd, look for facial, use facial recognition, anything pattern recognition in the movement of the crowd, anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I love this question. There are a lot of differences between humans and AI and some, you know, there are pluses and minuses on both sides, really. Um, on the AI side, it's always on. You don't have to worry about it falling asleep, right? Um, you don't have to worry right. about AI really falling off a pole unless, you know, one of the cameras comes loose, I guess, right? Good point. Um, so uh, there are a lot of differences, but AI is also limited to the data that we give it and the resources that we give it to, to operate on. Um, humans have such a capacity to process data, to collect and process data. If you think about all of the kind of sensors that we have built into our bodies, you know, every nerve ending that we have is a sensor, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, our sense of sight, you know, all of our senses are bringing in data constantly 24 seven to our body, even really kind of while we're sleeping. And our brains have billions of nodes that they work on. Most AI systems don't have that much compute power, right? Um, there's one system I know of that that kind of does, and it's the um, the OpenAI GPT-3 uh, text generation program. It has 175 billion parameters, but that also costs $12 million to train. So, you know, we have that many parameters running in our brain every day, so and we don't have to pay $12 million for it, right. right? With a lot less power and a lot less cooling, by the way, to actually get that output, a lot less, exactly. 
Um, thanks for mentioning that. That's a really good point. So I guess to move on beyond that, to really start getting to the basics, you know, for me particularly was what I've seen systems, for example, that could do predict uh, do predictions and really spooky predictions. There was a system, as a matter of fact, I got to watch uh, demonstrated where they were able, by watching traffic patterns in a particular city, this company, move to a point where they were with 65% precision could predict a traffic accident about 15 minutes into the future. And it was really freaky to watch that sort of thing happen. So we start talking about that, and it looks like magic and fireworks. You know, what are the things that we're missing? Just as people who want to find out more about it, want to understand more about it, what are the things that we're missing when we first start messing around with AI, ML, particularly the data? Because that seems to me like the biggest thing that we really end up getting into when we start trying to use these systems. Yeah, for sure. Um, the data is definitely the biggest piece of the, the, the puzzle. But there are also, like in a system that you're talking about, there are all kinds of other things that you have to consider. Lots of moving pieces, right? Because, you again, you have to have the inputs. Um, so for something like that, you're probably getting computer vision off of traffic cameras or something of that nature. And you might have several other inputs that feed into your system as well. Um, so yeah, data is a huge part of it. A lot of times you're going to have multiple uh, models working in those kinds of scenarios. So breaking down the problems into smaller pieces. Um, but what I notice the most when people are getting into AIML, the thing that they miss is the data. You know, people are always trying to go after these fancy algorithms. Um, like I know about this algorithm and I know about that algorithm and you know, and I'm going, okay, but how do you prepare your data? <laughs> how do you do your feature engineering? Right. How do you find the right data? How are you collecting your data? How are you labeling your data? And so I, I feel like new people to the industry, they get really involved in the algorithms and the algorithms are actually kind of the easy part. There are a lot of libraries that will set up the algorithms for you. In just a few lines of code, you can train a scikit-learn model or a Keras model, right? Um, and so to mm -hmm. me, the algorithms tend to be the easier part. Um, and the feature engineering and the, the data piece of it is the really difficult part. Hugh, it's interesting you said that, particularly about the feature engineering and the data input, because one of the things that particular organization did that I thought was just absolutely mind-blowing was they actually started doing inputs on uh, phone releases. And they found there was a correspondence in terms of what was going on on the roads and the release of an update to an operating system on a phone or an update mm -hmm. to a new model. And it was really simple to figure out people were playing with their phones when they were in traffic because they just got the latest thing. So I guess that kind of plays to that. Um, but there's something else to that, that that's always kind of got me because I've heard so many, you know, persons who like yourself, you're doing this every day, not just the fun stuff that appears on the internet. Hey, here's a fun thing to try. And it comes down to labeling. Um, and I've seen it over and over again, you know, at Amazon, we had AWS ground truth um, uh, to actually automate labeling. So from your perspective, and again, I want, I want to peel this back so you can really tell us not the cute things, but really the day-to-day -day grind of making these things happen. What is it from an AI ML space that the day-to-day -day that we need to understand about the actual practice of uh, labeling? Um, yeah, so data labeling can be the most expensive part of a project, depending on what you're doing. For example, mm. I worked with um, some radiology data for a while, and if you're trying to get radio, you know, x-rays labeled, for example, or MRIs labeled, you have to have a trained uh, radiologist do that for you. And radiologists make like $500,000 a year. So imagine if you need 100,000 images labeled by radiologists, <laughs> like you're wow. talking about millions of dollars of labeling there, right? So it can be the most expensive piece of the, pro of the process. And a lot of times you do need, you know, there are some unsupervised algorithms which don't require label data, but a lot of the problems require label data. 
Um, now, not all of the labeling can be that expensive. You can do some simple text classification using like cloud programs. So uh, all the major platforms have different uh, labeling platforms. I think AWS is SageMaker. Um, and they're in AWS is very famous for Mechanical Turk, which if you look up the origins of that word, it's a, uh, that name, it's a really fun story. Um, but anyway, they, uh, Mechanical Turk is where you can, you put whatever you need to have labeled on their platform. And it's kind of uh, Ubering out people to come label your data for you, right? So it's really simple yes, labeling tasks that anyone can do. You can kind of farm it out, right? But um, some right. of the more complex things you have to have trained professionals to do for you, and that can get very expensive. You know, and that's interesting you brought that up because there I've seen so many examples where that came in. For example, uh, one of the ones I was really blown away by was the fact that Fender was using, was using AIML with uh, guitar production. And what they had to do was exactly what you spoke about. They kind of had to take their master craftsmen's off the line and let them start labeling like Woodstock that the, uh, that, that the visual sensors were seeing coming in saying, I like this with this, with this, like, like the body, with what they're going to use for the neck, things like that. And that really ended up being for them the part they didn't expect. They thought it was just going to be poof, magic fireworks. And they said, no, 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 no. You're going to have to spend a lot of time making sure this data is right. And I think that's the interesting part about that because uh for the, for those of you who aren't aware of it aws has something where they basically have this racing league called deep racer and uh, i encourage any of you look it up it's really a lot of fun the idea is you get these little cars uh from uh amazon you can find it on amazon.com i'm not trying to sell them by the way chris i'm just telling people <laughs> so you can get these things and what you do is you train them to go around a physical racetrack well back in 2018 when we first started doing that, we were just doing it in-house. And a matter of fact, I've got one of them right over there. It's this awful looking creature. But I saw that problem right there. People weren't taking the time with the data they were putting in. And it led to the most bizarre results. We actually watched one team, uh, instead of getting behind the car and driving it, the way their data was being set up was the driver was walking in front of it backwards. So the car was learning about following like some little duckling, the driver's feet. And so when they had to run the race, the car just sat there. So from your perspective, how big a, how many times have you seen that sort of thing happen? Is it not that big a deal or is bad data getting to be a real problem in the space to build the best models possible? Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of a peculiar issue because, um, you know, not not all AI is computer vision, right? So like that's where your sensors right. picking up something you wouldn't expect. Um, and so, yeah, you do have to think about the environment and you do have to think about things. I would say there's less of an opportunity for that to necessarily come in, but it is a good uh, indication that you probably didn't do sufficient model testing, right? So we do see things like that happen, like unexpected results where in testing, like you're developing and you're testing and developing and testing, but you haven't actually launched it live to the end users, people who are going to actually use the system. Um, and when you're in testing, it looks like it's doing great. Like you might have 96% accuracy and you're like, wow, this thing is fantastic. I can't believe the model's doing so well. And then when you launch it for someone to actually use, they're going, oh, this is all wrong. <laughs> like, well, what happened right. here? Right. Yeah. And so exactly. I've had, you know, in one of the situations where I had that happen, it was because the department who gave me the data didn't give me complete data. And so we were missing whole sets mm -hmm. of things that it needed to be able to recognize. 
And so we're thinking this is, this is going so well, but like that emphasizes the need for just very thorough model model testing. And when you do your releases, you do small releases first to a very small crowd, which is what we did. So it it never was released to like our entire customer base or or anything like that. It was only a release to insiders who knew what we were up to, right? (laughs) And we were able to fix it. But yeah, before the big day, if you're in a competition, you've got to test it in like a situation that's Mm -hmm. similar to what it will be in on on race day, right? So yeah. Yes. Oh, it it was, it absolutely was one of the funniest things to watch. There was one team, matter of fact, they were one of the pro teams. They put their car down through the switch and I'm not making this up and anybody who was there will tell you the story. They threw the switch the thing like jumped to warp three and just tore out of the convention center. It was great. Went into a crowd, hit people. We were just like, yeah, good job. But that brings about the point that you're making about modeling. I mean, Kristen, we're even seeing it now. Matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I'm not even going to mention the incident because I was so personally horrified by it, where there was a video on a particular social media platform. Um, it was some, uh, some, uh, so I believe some men interacting with police and there was a video recommendation that was made. It's very similar to what we've heard the stories about HR systems that are using AI and ML to make recommendations. Um, when we're doing these models, I mean, is there a way to build in your mind, is there a way to reach a confidence level where you can say, we feel good about releasing this to into the production environment or do, is it, are we sort of stuck in that thing? Like you just said, small models, small uh, user groups to make sure we're going in the right direction. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely things and depending on the domain, ethics can be a huge concern, kind of what you mentioned. Um, You know, there are so many examples of ethics being a huge issue in AI. Like I think it was Microsoft who released that chat bot that was racist, you know, and then Amazon had an issue with hiring MI, you know, that was also racist, you know, or like at least biased mm-hmm. for men. And, yeah. you know, so, yeah. and the issue is if you're looking at historic data, the majority of the data of, of hires are white men, right? And so when you're thinking about training a model for something in HR, you have to think about um, giving everyone who might be applying an even, even playing field in the, in the eyes of AI by, you know, making sure that your data points are evenly distributed um, among certain user groups, right? And, um, you know, that's one way, that's one way of kind of helping. But I think in my opinion, when you're doing the model testing, so most AI ML people, they're working with a domain expert. Um, I'm not an HR expert, but I might build an AI ML system for an HR department. In that scenario, I would require um, a an expert in diversity and inclusion um, during model testing, so they could also, you know, look at the same results and say, yeah, it's it's doing what I would do if I was trying to create a diverse workforce, or no, it's really off here and we need to tweak this or retrain or something like that. And then again, you know, for us for quite a while, I would say you want to have a human in the loop system. So you want to have a human kind of checking the model. You don't want to just release it and say, go do your thing model and nobody's going to check you, right? (laughs) You need to have somebody else. We need to have like human people also kind of checking and making sure that the model's doing what it's supposed to along the way. You know, it it comes down to that whole thing like online grammar checkers and things like that. Um, It's been my experience. Yeah, they work real great. But for goodness sakes, let a human check it because there's a lot of things that can slip through their system and just absolutely get you. Absolutely. So, you know, that's and that to me, I think is interesting because as again, as somebody who doesn't deal with this stuff every day, I just look at sort of the magic of it. 
it really is you start to go, you know, what's going on here? And it never occurred to me, and this is actually one of the first times I've heard about it, the idea of get a domain expert, get them to sit there to validate, because I know exactly what I'll do as a big nerd myself. I'll like, I know exactly what I'm doing. You're going to be excellent and watch it. And at the same time, never stop to think, yeah, I probably need to get a diversity inclusion expert in here to see what's going on to validate this model. Or you end up really creating a software that at a minimum is useless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to push past that though, because since I've kind of wandered into the, uh, the, the land of ethics and things like that, and I know this is a little off the subject, but I think it's important because it falls back to what a lot of people are reticent about using it. Do you really think that at some point we could get to this whole idea of a singularity, the idea of, you know, a Terminator out there, or as I actually have heard somebody say once, a tribe of jerk robots just running around causing mayhem. <laughs> and if you don't mind, besides the tribe of jerks, um, as a follow on to that, do you think we actually have a hardware limitation that's going to keep us from ever getting to that point? At least right now we have a hardware limitation. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of all of that, and we've kind of touched on on several things that kind of impact this conversation already. But you know, there's Moore's law was a big deal in computer science for so long. That's you know how much we're going to increase the computer uh, processing speed um, year over year um, just by building better processors, right? Well, we've kind of reached the limits of where Moore's law. Um, so we can still increase our processing speeds a little bit, but not as much year over year as we used to be able to, right? Um, and right. so, and then, you know, there are also algorithmic improvements, just optimizing our algorithms, making our algorithms work better, um, getting into neural nets, things like that. But, you know, like I said before, oh. sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was gonna say, you know, that to me is really a big sticking point for me personally, because as you and I have had the fun discussion, everybody, just to let you know, I've seen Kristen work magic with python and it absolutely just drives me insane because she does one line of code and then all this magic happens whereas i like to program in things like c and rust and i have to do like ten thousand lines of code and i get like hello world on the screen so i think that's you know it's kind of an interesting thing to think about that and really explore that and think about if we really have efficient code instead of this you know bloatware as we used to call it that's something that could help us a lot in that realm of uh AI and ML. So I think that's important. And I also think about people like um, uh, the, the futurist K Eric, K. Eric Drexler in his book, Engines of Creation, where he basically pointed out one of the problems and he had, he had summarized the idea of a 3D processor. That is a chip that was actually three-dimensional. The amount of water that you'd have to push through that device in order for it to reach a level of processing for singularity was like, it was like, it was almost impossible to do it. So yeah, I, th I think from my point of view, it's kind of like never say never. It used to be like the thing, oh, you've got 16 megs of RAM. You'll never use that much. Uh, yeah, yeah, we will. We'll use it like that. So it, so it seems like we're a long way from the idea of a Terminator. But in the meantime, can how much, a, how much trouble can you think we can get into with AI? You can get into quite a bit of trouble. I mean, at the end of the day, computers are stupid. <laughs> you have yeah. to tell them yeah. every anyone who's done any programming knows you have to tell them every single thing, right? And so it's kind of like working with a two-year-old sometimes. Um, only they can process tons of data, right? So what what computers are good at is processing things. What they're not good at is thinking, right? <laughs> so you right. can get yourself into a lot of trouble with a bad algorithm. 
Um, you know, I had one that went that someone said at one of my old companies, um, and totally not his fault, a long story, but it ended up racking up like a $10,000 bill in a week because there was just a bug in it, you know, <laughs> like kept yeah. hitting Google right. cloud with something and <laughs> ran up. The, I mean, it really ran it up, but yeah, like you can get yourself into a lot of trouble, both in just like it making bad decisions and, and like the, the resources that it uses up, it can run up huge bills. You can get it yourself into a lot of trouble. But are we looking at human-like computers that are evil, um, you know, Terminator-style things? I think we're a long way from that. Like I said, the only thing that even has like anything close to our brain capacity for compute power is that like, uh, to the best of my knowledge anyway, is the OpenAI uh, GPT-3 system. And that took years to train, right? in $12 million. So it's not like, and, and that's close to our brain capacity. So we're just so far away from like the speed and the amount of input data. Um, you know, the computer is limited to what sensors we give it to even pull data from or whatever input, you right. know, whatever method of input that we give it or whatever data we give it. So it's just right. very limited, right? Um, in what it can do. Okay. Yeah. and and. Thinking about that, though, does it go back to this idea of is, is it the model? Is it the algorithm or is it the data? Like to me, it always to me, all the ones I've seen, Kristen, that made my heart skip was a data problem. We basically had biased data and the data led to a really big eventuality. Do you see it that way or do you see it more on the model side or more on the algorithm selection side? Yeah, it's probably you know, two things. It's either the system that the algorithms uh, integrated into or the data and most likely the data. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, it seems like, you know, and, and it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, when data is at, is at risk for bias, for example, the model eval, you know, has to be heightened. We got to bring in more real life testing. How much of that do you see in the industry that's occurring in a very active manner where they're doing real life checks or are we making a lot of mistakes with it where we're just saying, Oh, it looks great. We throw it out there and then just total mayhem ensues. You know, the tribe of jerks, the <laughs> awful recommendations for videos, the incredibly bad choice for HR decisions. How much are you seeing in that of, of, of that sort of thing happening where it just, it didn't have the real life uh, checks that it needed. I would say it's getting better. So in what I've been observing, even just in products that I buy and use for my home, is that human in the loop systems are really gaining in popularity. Mm -hmm. Even recently, I got a puppy. And so I got this Furbo system. And um, mm -hmm. essentially, it's this camera and it has a little container and it'll sh you can watch your dog while you're gone and shoot out treats and talk to it and all this stuff. But it will also recognize if your dog is barking or whining or just moving around. And it'll send you an alert on your phone and you can check it. But what I love about it is when I check it, it'll say, was this more of a bark or a whine? That's a human in the loop system yes. so you're training the ai every time you do that and then you know they're like the new robots the uh, like the um vacuum robots used to be uh, roomba is one of the older ones right. the new technology right. from other companies around that is spectacular like every time it gets caught it'll learn hey what did i see right before i got caught and then it will start avoiding those objects you know and so because i just got in it i can't remember the name of the one that i got it's not it's not roomba but i just yeah, like the yeah. learning capacity uh, like how these things they're teaching these things to learn as they go is very exciting yeah. to me and i think the tech is i think the industry is really getting smart about how they're 
incorporating training into the systems and um, incorporating humans in the system to kind of check and help them learn and things like that. And so I'm really excited about the direction that the industry has been headed in. Well, then in that case, let me ask you a question because that's interesting. The idea that, you know, the systems are getting better, but you know, this is not something you and I are just doing for funsies on the weekend. You know, we got to have a lot. Oh, yeah. So then we start talking, we start talking, I'm sorry, everybody. I, I don't live and die by the computer, but it seems like, you know, when I think about executive leadership, you know, the folks that are trying to figure out where can we put money to make things happen? Um, you know, like when it came to cloud I, and, and being somebody who's really interested in cloud, I still think there's a lot of executive leadership that's still catching up to what cloud is and the fact that it's not yeah. an IT decision. It is a business strategy. So in that sort of, I mean, do you see the same sort of situation happening moving forward with like data science, AI, ML, and um, and let me make this as concrete as I can. Is there anything you would suggest to executive leaders or people who talk to executive leaders to help align their business decisions with the realities of what AI and ML is going to bring to uh, bear in the uh, in the coming years? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've, we've kind of seen an evolution of data in business generally, and it started out with like data analytics. And then as data analytics grew, then some more advanced analytics, which include uh, machine learning, which is where um, data scientists come in and really kind of, right. even before you can get an advanced analytics crew in, you've got to have data engineering. So people can, who can pull data from source systems and put it in a place where everyone can use it. And we're all you know looking at one source of truth and all that. And so I feel like a lot of the groundwork has been done for data science. Like a lot of companies have now established that data is valuable. The analytics that we're getting really helps make good solid decisions and so like those departments tend to be a little more advanced data science is is kind of coming in on the heels of that which is good because it's it's a good foundation for data science but data scientists are expensive and aiml people are expensive right <laughs> and a lot of the yeah, projects yeah. that all the big value you know there are some quick wins that you can get in there but a lot of the big high dollar um projects that a lot of companies want to do, I, I don't, you know, executives get really excited about it, but they don't necessarily understand kind of the commitment required to, um, you know, endeavor on an AI project. Because um, you're talking about multiple years, a lot of money, um, it's a huge investment in a long time before you can really launch a product. Now, there are some things that data scientists can do along the way, like they're intermittent intermediate value adds that you can um, kind of provide. So data scientists often will stumble across a lot of valuable insights in the data along the way of building an AI system. There are some kind of minor releases you can do that still help with efficiency and workflows, even though it's not a full AI system. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you tell an executive, I'm going to need $5 million in three years before you get a product, it's a hard sell, right? <laughs> so, right. But, you know, the right. reversal it is, you know, if you don't, you know, ultimately you, the system, you know, the efficiency gain that's the target is usually going to save more than what you're spending. Um, right. And also, if you don't do it, everybody else is and you're going to be left behind. Right. Um, but it's still it's just it's hard. It feels risky. And in some ways it is risky. You can run into a lot of issues with data and things along the way. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, it's I can make a joke about what you just said, like a really silly joke, particularly because you have a puppy and a Roomba. And generally those things <laughs> don't go together well. If anybody who's seen any of the horror pictures. But here's the thing, though. And I want everybody watching to really, really grab onto what Kristen just said, because it sounds like she said something simple. She just she threw a big mountain up for everybody. 
those models, particularly going forward into the future and how we use them, are a huge deal because if you can create the Roomba that knows I shouldn't hit that or I should go around that, that's going to be a change in the industry that's going to set you apart. Um, Especially and, 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 when it's puppy poo, I'm just saying. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I was not going to say it, everybody. That's all Kristen right there. Yes, Kristen. That's Day, actually right part there. of their marketing. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But I've been mean, going back to what you're talking about with data and person in the middle and stuff like that. Um, that's a big deal because I'm sure if you haven't seen them, everybody go look up the picture sometime. It is absolutely horrific. I mean, there's been a puppy, there's been an accident, the Roomba has started up, and oh my goodness. But that, Kristen, goes back to what you said about the human in the middle and that market differentiation, especially going to executive leadership saying, you know, I know this is going to cost $5 million to hire all these people to go through all these images to be able to identify that successfully. But when you're speaking to executive leadership, isn't that the differentiating factor in creating a product that really sets itself apart? when it uses AI ML as you do uh, there as an applied uh, data scientist? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the value. Well, there's two values. Either you're releasing, you're not always releasing a product to the general public to use. In fact, most of the time what I do is I'm releasing products internally for different departments of my company. And so what we're looking at is increased efficiency, like manufacturing uh, optimization, right. supply chain optimization, um, which, you know, if we, if we can help optimize what we have to hold on our shelves in a manufacturing facility um, in order to keep the line running, but without having an ex excess that we have to pay for extra storage for, you know, that's millions of those millions of dollars add up on that pretty quickly, right? So a lot of what, or, you know, workflow optimization, um, if you're under, I mean, right now everybody's understaffed, right? So the more you can help um, the people who are actually sitting in seats get more work done and the better it is for your company. So a lot of the problems are optimization, not just external product offerings. Okay, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's the internal stuff. Um, you know, there's a, there was a company I worked with up in up in Pennsylvania that had the same sort of thing. They were actually using uh, vibration heat detectors and things like that to build in those internal models. What was interesting about that, and tell me if you've if, if you've ever heard of occurrence of this, someone internally builds a really 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 good model. It's so it's it's prediction is just off the chart successful. Is that the sort of thing that you could say to an executive leader? Look, we created this thing. It's incredible. Why don't we market it? Well, I mean, that's what Google and AWS and, and Microsoft did, mm -hmm. right? Anytime you're getting on and using their API uh, NLP systems like text classification or text parsing, they've spent a ton of time and money getting that data prepared and creating models so you can send your data through it. So yeah, absolutely, those things exist. Um, a lot of times though, a lot of those kind of models to be able to use to, to use them in other companies are going to require some retraining and a little tweaking for uh, right. well so the input data especially in manufacturing like there are so many different ERPs so trying to get it all in a standardized format to go through the same model would be would be difficult not impossible um, but you can do it and I think a lot of people are headed that way. But that goes back to the sort of the beginning of our conversation and the part that I really wanted to bring out to all of our viewers is that you know. We talk about sort of the magic of it and what it looks like and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's really, it seems to me like from what I've, from, from what I've studied and what I'm hearing, from what I've heard from you is it's about just the get your hands dirty with that data, clean it up, process it correctly, 
label it correctly. Do the feature engineering. And you've said that a couple of times. I know what it is. I want to see if I understand it correctly. So Kristen, what is feature engineering? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's funny because when I, when I, um, am mentoring people and they go to give, um, you know, uh, uh, presentations to business owners and they use the word feature, I'm right. always correcting them. Stop using that word. <laughs> Nobody knows what it means except for us. Right. So that's a right. great question. A feature is just an input. Um, and so feature engineering is just preparing inputs. And so when you have raw data, you have to figure out, um, what inputs are going to be informative to the system that you're trying to build. And so a lot of times I'll actually talk to a domain expert and say, what do you think about when you're making these decisions, right? If I have to program a computer to make them, like what, what kind of things do you consider? Um, and that's, that's a good starting point. And then sometimes you can even pull in data that they wouldn't have time to consider or things that are related or just other things that maybe would be relevant. And um, you have to figure out kind of what's correlated, what isn't. Um, sometimes you'll blend features together. Sometimes you'll split them apart. So one of the things, you know, a simple illustration would be a date. Um, so you might, from a date, uh, aggregate everything up to the, the week of the year, like an ISO week or the month of the year or something like that, right? Um, or does it fall on a Monday? Like this is all information that you can get from a date. Um, and you might use different pieces of information related to a date. You rarely would use a raw date to, to actually train a model on, um, but you can use, you can get a lot of information out of a date stamp um, and use that as one of your, your inputs or your features, right? Right, exactly. Now to that point, because we're getting near the end here and there's something I wanted to ask you about because I've heard a lot about it inside the industry and it's getting to be a, a bigger and bigger deal. And I believe it's going to be one of the differentiating factors. Again, I'm a big proponent in what I've seen in the industry right now when it comes to cloud, for example, that there's a lot of companies that are doing incredible work and there's a lot of companies that are falling behind. It's almost like an inverse sine wave of, you know, who's really doing well and who's not. And the thing I've heard is this idea of using continuous delivery for AI and ML. Is that something you could talk to us about? Yeah, sure. Um, we definitely uh, use that. So in I... To the best of my knowledge, we use a rather simple version of it um, where we're just doing build triggers based on pushes to our Git repos or Git branches even. So we'll have a dev right. branch, a test branch, a main branch, and we've got triggers built. So anytime I push to a dev branch, it's going to rebuild a Docker container and replace the one that's in our dev environment running. Um, and so then we can see how it's running in dev. When we get it running in dev the way we want it, then we'll um, push to our test branch, right? And we've got a build trigger. So when we push to our test branch, it's going to rebuild a container and deploy to our test branch. Um, and then, you know, when we're happy with it in test, it'll go to prod. Only it might be right. like, prod beta or you know what I mean to our right. model right. group exactly. beta users and then yeah so but we just set up build, build triggers on, around our uh, github pushes yeah there was a couple of experts I spoke to about this and that seemed to be one of the biggest things they were really really pushing and to a degree I got a little irritated because it seems like there's a lot of folks trying to push a framework of some sort or something that they want you to implement but if for anybody who's doing this it's, is it pretty safe to say, kind of using what you just said, there are simple ways to get started with this so that you can use, for example, GitHub or something like that to start creating these sort of continuous delivery pipelines, correct? 
Yeah, I would absolutely use a containerized appointment. Um, and as far as I can tell, Docker is still the best uh, industry gold standard, as far as I know. Um, and the reason why is, you know, without it, I've seen data engineering teams do releases without a containerized appointment or without build triggers and things like that. Every time you push it, you have to make sure that the environment is the same, right? So if you're in dev and it's working in dev and you want to move it to test, well, you may have made some changes in your dev environment. Maybe you installed some packages or updated a version in a package or something like that. So when you move your code into test, if you aren't moving the whole environment with it, then you've got to figure out what, you know, it's still not going to run right. And then you got to figure out what in my environment is wrong. You know, whereas if it's a containerized deployment, your container, your environment's going with your code, right? And so all you have to do is run the mm -hmm. container, it runs your environment, it runs your code and everything. So I would say absolutely, you know, if you're going to get into deployments, you're, you're going to have to learn <laughs> containerized deployments. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There might be ways absolutely. around it, but I, I, and I do think that cloud platforms make it easier than, you know, when you do it locally with Docker, because like uh, the right. cloud build types of things, um, just easier. Right. They do a lot more for you then yeah. you don't have to do all the commands. Well, I, I think the thing is interesting about that, though, that you said that. And I think that uh, I hope everybody watching really grabs onto this is because where you're going to find this is me being predictive, Kristen, if I'm out of my mind, please correct <laughs> me in front of uh, everybody here. But it seems to me like one of the main things, like personally, I have used that sort of idea of using a containerized, uh, containerized AI ML model is pushing to IoT devices. And when you have disparate IoT devices all over the place, and I use something like Amazon um, ECS Anywhere, being able at the very beginning to say, we built this as a container, we can use that infrastructure to push these things out everywhere. I mean, there's actually uh, one particular AI ML system I'm thinking of that is used on plane engines. And what they're doing is they're looking for strange vibrations, they're looking for temperatures. And for those of you who don't get just how big a deal that Kristen just made there with containers, Think about trying to push out a critical update to all the planes as quickly as possible. You're going to need something that's going to be continuous delivery so you can go boop and just push the whole thing out in a big hurry. So, again, Kristen, thank you for saying that. Although I feel like sometimes, particularly as somebody who's not into it, you say these huge things and we go, okay, even then this huge <laughs> thing just went by that could change our, our thoughts on it. Now, one, uh, one big question for me, big question for me. Now, uh, I do a lot of cloud stuff. I do a lot of systems programming. I use things like C++ and Rust. Let's say I've lost my mind and I want to start working in the dark arts like you. How <laughs> on earth do you get started with this stuff? Because everybody seems to, and I'm not going to name anyone in particular, but I've seen some other organizations that create material for this stuff. And it just seems like it's so canned and silly, and I didn't really learn anything. How would you suggest somebody get started in this space? And are there any particular skills that you're like, you've got to make sure you've got this before you start mucking around inside the world of AI? Yeah, absolutely. And I do hire in the field. And I would say the most important thing to me if I'm looking at a candidate is how well they can code in Python. Uh, that's number one, mm -hmm. hands down. Like, I will teach you machine learning, but I am not going to teach you how to code in Python. <laughs> so, like, you need to know how. You need to know. Now, in data science, uh, you know, less so than AIML, um, a lot of people code in R still um, for more analytics. 
Um, oh, I find that R is more difficult to deploy. Um, like it doesn't air normally and you can kind of build in. So right. it'll stop if it airs. And, but I, I find it's a little bit painful. Most of the people I know doing integrated kind of smart system things are using Python. I think Go is getting bigger, but I don't know that many people that use it outside of Google. Um, I'm, I'm sure that it is. I just don't know about it. But almost everybody I know codes in Python. Um, definitely, I'm a Python coder. And that would be the number one thing I'd say, get good at Python before you start digging into um, more of the MLAI stuff. Once you've gotten really good at Python, huh? Is it, before, before you jump to anything else, is there anything in particular, you know, like uh, any oh. of the uh, modules or anything like that that are super important sure. that we need to look yeah, you're going to need to know Pandas <laughs> for sure. Pandas is the primary library. It handles data frames, right. which are essentially like Excel. Right. You can think of those as like Excel tables, um, but that's going right. to handle right. all your tabular data and code. And so data scientists are in Pandas all day long. So Pandas is the main right. library that you're going to need. Right. And for anybody who's watching who doesn't get, uh, again, a big thing just went by. Let me slow it down and back it up. That is a big deal. That is the stuff that Kristen has done for me live where she's like, Oh, let's just take a look at something. And there's been like this one line of Python using uh, pandas. And then there's a graph on the screen. And it's really amazing. Um, to that end, would you recommend they also start looking at things like uh, uh, Jupyter and Jupyter Notebooks oh, yeah. for getting to learning about how to do this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Jupyter is a fan, like you can't really beat Jupyter as a tool for learning Python, and you're going to use that too. When I'm in development, I'm usually testing things in Python before I script them up for deployment. So I usually I, I often have both up. I'll have a, a Jupyter notebook on one side of my screen and in my script on the other side in VS Code, and you know I'll test out a function, make sure it does what I think it's supposed to do, and then you know once it's tested and I like it, then I'll put it in my script and I'll start pulling it into my Jupyter notebook as a module, and then I'll develop the rest of my my functions and methods. And when I like them, I script them. And, you know, that's just kind of my workflow. And I think how that's how a lot of people do it. But definitely Jupyter being interactive is a really good way to learn how to code in Python. For anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, Jupyter, you can look it up. It's J-U-P-Y-T-E-R. Look up Jupyter Notebook. It's a system that goes right onto Windows and Mac systems without any problem whatsoever. And what really makes it powerful is as you're learning about Python, as you're learning about how to do AI, ML, and, and, and things like Panda, you can run each line of code individually, see exactly what's going to happen. And if you make a mistake, go back, change it, rerun that line, and just keep on going. And the thing that Kristen just said there is, is super powerful. Yes, once you know you like the way it's running, it's really cool to have that sort of it worked and then move it over to someplace else. And Kristen, to tell you of the one AI, ML person I've seen, that's the one tool he uses when he has to go into the boardroom and explain stuff. He just brings up Jupiter. They start asking questions. He just starts cranking data live in front of them. And it's just, to me, it's one of the biggest tools I've seen just to really get stuff going. Okay, cool. Um, before we go any further, Catherine, do we have any questions from the audience that you'd like for us to uh, take on? What's up, guys? Great conversation. I'm loving listening to all of this, and the audience is loving it as well, monitoring comments and uh, chat from across our social media platforms. Some really great uh, great comments coming in. Alan, we see you there in Rio. Thanks for watching. Uh, a lot of folks tuning in today. Um, I do want to get to a few questions, though. This comes from No Name Fox 2021 question. And this gets back to some of the ethics that you guys were talking about earlier, but I think this is really interesting. While AI innovation is great and bad for human society, should there be a governing body who is watching your next AI? Example, TikTok uses AI to promote specific contents to different consumers. In this case, 
teenagers are the target consumers. There's a viral video on causing school property damage. Who should be watching TikTok AI? Well, that's a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> Getting, <it is. laughs> me on my political soapbox a little bit here. I am a recovering attorney. Um, so for... <laughs> Yeah, for like government regulation, I kind of have mixed feelings um, because on the one hand, I do think it would be good to have some government re regulation of AI, although the current state of government re uh, regulation tends to have a lot of dollars that are that tend to guide what's regulated and how it's regulated coming from large businesses. Right. So to me, I think until you pull the money out of the political system, um, it might not really be in the best interest of people, but in the best interest of whoever's paying for the legislation. So to me, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I do think there should be some governments. I, I, I think that it needs to be done right. Yeah, and I agree with that too, uh, Catherine. You know, it's, and, and I'll even go a step further and say, you know, typically when the government gets involved in some sort of regulation, it's not going to go the way you expect. Uh, there's going to be strange side effects that you never expected. And so then you kind of get into this weird place of just saying, well, you're gonna, are you going to let the market handle it? Well, yeah, you could do that, but we know just fine well, and that's a great question right there, thank you, though, about you know TikTok using this thing in a way, or it's it's being used in a way that is very, very negative. So when we get into that space, um, I hate to say it, it's almost going to be like a time will tell sort of thing. Uh, again, I'm very concerned about any sort of government regulation. I think I'd be even more concerned about sort of the international regulation. But uh, it's something that we are going to have to figure out. And I think that to me is the, and I'd like your thoughts on this, Kristen. That to me is one of the more things that makes me more nervous about AI ML. We're figuring this out as we've gone along. You know, we've had uh, science fiction writers, particularly uh, for those of you who know the backstory of Dune, how that actually happened. The movie's coming out soon. The backstory is actually based on a uh, AI system. It kind of went off and it did its own thing and humanity decided, enough of that. Um, so when it comes to that sort of stuff, I'm very leery of government regulation because I think we're still finding our way along. Do you kind of see it that way too, Krista? That we're still just kind of getting our toes wet right now? Yeah, I'm, yes. Um, you know, I wouldn't want someone who wasn't an expert in the field with a ton of experience in AI trying to regulate AI because I think they would really have no idea how to do it right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it just, it would need to, it does need to happen, but it needs to be done correctly. Uh, yeah, and right. I, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it any better than that. I mean, this is one of those questions, right? So, it's like, it, it's the question without an answer, um, unfortunately, right now, right? Right, Yeah. right. Actually, no, if, if we, uh, uh, to the questioner, great question, and if we knew the answer to it, we wouldn't be talking to you, we'd be out making a million bucks, philosophizing <laughs> on this stuff, so yeah. that's how good your question is, so thank you very much for that. Do we have any others? Yeah, absolutely, got one coming in from, uh, I think you pronounced your name, Vinod, sorry if I mispronounced that, I mispronounced that, but this is a good one. There's so much fuss about AIML and a bunch of confusing training out there. AIML being user-based, people being used by people based on what they want out of it. How can people who have no idea about ML algorithms still use AIML? Oh, that's a good question. Um... Yeah, I'm, my biggest problem with most of the trainings out there is that they don't give you a realistic understanding of what it's like to actually do like AIML 
in real life. They're giving you the toy data sets like Titanic data set, which I understand why it's good to illustrate certain certain uh, like principles with, but it's not good in terms like like if you want to understand how a decision tree works, Titanic data data sets a great one for a decision tree illustration. But if you want to know how to create a decision tree model that you're going to use in real life, it's just very much more complicated than that. Um, you know, kind of what I mentioned in the beginning of the of the the meeting was um, how important the input data is. And you're just you're not going to get a data set like the Titanic data set in real life. You're going to get this messy pile of garbage that you have to dig through. Um, and so, you know. It, it is hard. I have a few classes on INE. I think it's a great source. Um, and there are some other, I, I think, uh, some other good places to start. I read tons of articles on Medium. Some are good, some are bad. If I'm trying to learn something new, I will um, probably try and read anywhere from three to five articles on the same topic um, and then figure out the right way to do it. Um, so I think if you just go pick one article, you're unlikely to get the right answer on the first try. You might get lucky, but I would try to read at least three and probably like four or five um, on the same topic. Uh, and, and then just generally, you know, after if you if you learn how to code in Python, the next step would be try to understand kind of the big categories of ML models instead of digging deep into all these very specific models, right? So understand what a decision tree is versus a linear regressor, understand what classification is uh, versus a continuous output. Um, like those are the things you need to learn first. And that'll help you figure out kind of where to go to solve the particular problem that you're trying to solve. Um, but it is a journey. There's a lot out there. You're right. Um, and, and I kind of have a problem with that, too. I, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah, and I'm the same way. You know, I, I've seen your videos. I think your videos from the ones uh, that I've seen external, they really sort of cut to the heart of the matter a lot better. I felt better about it because it, it really is one of those things. And, and to the question of the nod that you ask, um, there is a lot of training out there that kind of gives you this nice pretty cake thing says, hey, wasn't that cool? But it doesn't take you back to how it was done. Like, why did you choose this? Why did you choose that? And I, I can't agree with Kristen enough on that one. One of the best ways right now, because there isn't a lot of big central knowledge about it that's really trusted, just get out there and read the articles, read the articles, start pouring the stuff into your head, and you can learn it. I mean, there's nothing between you being an expert in this field except time and effort. You can do it. So you've just got to start grinding through that data, looking at those models, trying to understand the theories, and getting your hands dirty. Um, it, as a matter of fact, I was going to ask you if you could, Kristen, real quick, are there some great uh, data sets out there that folks could use, since you mentioned uh, a couple so far, that people could go out and grab and start using to really start under, you know, having something they can play with to understand modeling? You know what's really funny is it's actually really hard to get a hold of dirty data sets in the public domain. Uh. <laughs> I look and look and look for my, so when I'm teaching, I could like mm -hmm. show what real yeah. dirty data is like. The closest <laughs> you're gonna come is probably like the government, like data.gov has a bunch of data and yep. it's, yep. it's not easy to navigate in a lot of instances. So if you wanna understand the real struggle with data, like start at data.gov and, yeah. and like, don't get me wrong. I, I love it that our government <laughs> has collected and made public so much data, like it's so valuable. It's just not the easiest to navigate. Fine. And I mean, that's fine. Right. Um, you know, Google also has a bunch of data sets, 
the scikit-learn uh, library that you can use in Python to do machine learning models has a bunch of toy data sets. Right. I would not recommend those. Those are like, if you want to understand right. the algorithm, it's like the Titanic data set. Um, they're small, they're super simple, they're already cleaned. Uh, and so you're not going to really learn how to work with data using those. Um, so I would go, I would look at some of the bigger ones on, I'm, I'm sure AWS probably has some somewhere too. I think all the major cloud platforms have some data somewhere. I know that Google does. Um, and then, um, what else? I mean, Kaggle, but there's, there's can be kind of cleaned up too sometimes. I don't, that's not usually my first source of data. Well, no, to, to, to Vinod's question, because I think it was so important, is that, you know, if you really, you know, we're talking about learning this stuff. Um, if you don't play with dirty data, yeah, you don't Ooh, get it because it's just things to learn. If you learn how to web scrape, you will get a pile ah. of unstructured, dirty data to work with. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so everybody look that up. Look up how to web scrape. This is an, uh, by the way. <laughs> That is such a throwback to tech. That's like 1998, <laughs> 97. That's some old stuff. You would but be it's exactly right because you can companies still get data by web scraping. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. There was Go even one system yeah. I knew that was absolutely horrific where they took picture, take picture, put it through uh, OCD to try to figure out what was on there. It was it was absolutely horrendous, absolutely terrible. Um, Kristen, I think we're starting to uh, wind up here. So let me just say to Catherine. Uh, Catherine, do we have any last questions before we go? Yeah, we have, we have some great questions coming in, a bunch of them. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but I did want to get to this last question from Christopher Frazier. Okay. How would you manage yeah. access control for the container DevOps on a big corporate platform, Speci specifically with all the types of input for code from in-house third-party developers? So that's a little outside of my domain. Um, I do work with a security team who helps me handle that. And we are a multi-cloud platform. So, so for me, in my situation, I'm not pulling source data. We have a data engineering team that will pull from the ERPs and they put it into a data warehouse. Um, and then we're working between usually Azure and Google and sometimes AWS. Um, and for that, we use a, let's see if I can remember the terminology. Cause this is, this is not my domain. <laughs> it's like a, federated identity management or something like that. Yes. Um, essentially, yes. we're going to have a service account from uh, from Azure that we somehow give permissions to on Google, um, but I don't set that up, so I'm not entirely sure how all of that works. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, that's that's a little outside of my domain. Um, I, I think from my perspective, Chris, uh, when you're talking about security, because security should be job zero for anything we're doing. Um, the last thing you want to have happen is have somebody like Kristen in your organization who can do something absolutely magical with data and then you lose control of it. So as you're moving up through the DevOps pipeline, I think one of the most important things you can do is, you know, before you let anything happen, Chris, I mean, and you've, you've got to be about putting your foot down and saying, we're not taking a step forward. Make sure that when it comes down to those one thing that is being able to write to the repos, you've got control of that. So that's, for example, if you have a third, like I think you mentioned third party, third parties can write to branches and that's it. They can't do anything else. Then they can do a pull request and you can decide if that's gonna be allowed in because in my experience, what I've seen is, and I hate to say this, but uh, Christopher, but this is absolutely the case. Developers have slipped in some sneaky code, stuff that would do stuff after the fact. And I've even seen this stuff run and it was really bad and it kind of came down one of these pipelines. So one of the very first things you could do, and, and Krista mentioned, you know, 
federated, federated identity management, have a central core identification system so that as people are logging in, you have firm control there. And again, that's not going to be on your plate as it, like if you're going to be the AIML person. That's going to go over to security. Make sure the network people aren't allowing in via WAF rules access to those sort of systems. So now we're layering it. We're building that defense in depth. But more importantly, at the end of the day, particularly for developers like myself who have absolute heart attacks thinking about what somebody may slip into a model, slip into code, make sure they can only write to branches. Don't let them make commits to main. That way you have an opportunity to look at that data. And remember, Kristen said it a minute ago, the human in the loop. Get a human involved. I know it's slow. It's going to slow things down. But that's the price that we must pay for secure systems. You can't go fast and be super secure. You have to slow down. Get your things right. Then you can get your velocity back. But if you do that, you're going to throw the door open. And then I am so sorry, but that model that you had that could predict that that particular robot was about to run over poo is going to get stolen. Your competition is <laughs> going to get it. And then you have nothing special at all to offer the world. So. With that poo story, Catherine, I'm going to throw it back to you. I mean, the person or the uh, the robot that can figure that out will just be a right. gazillionaire. I, 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 I live right. in fear every day when I come downstairs. <laughs> right. right. Brooks and Kristen, thank you guys so much, so much. So many fantastic nuggets and just a really, really interesting discussion here. Thanks to our audience for tuning in, asking some great questions. I apologize we didn't get to all the questions and the comments, but uh, please keep them coming. Keep tuning in every single week. We'll be here live at Tech Tuesday uh, at 1 o'clock. That wraps up this week's Tech Tuesday on INE Live. If you missed it live, be sure to look back for the replay across our social channels and on the INE website as well. And again, you can look for us live next Tuesday, September 28th at 1 p.m. Eastern on whatever social media platform you choose. We'll be hosting a Meet the Expert format with Brian McGann and Cisco's Jason Gooley. It's going to be great. You don't want to miss it. We'll post more information as we get closer to the date, but go ahead and plan to tune in. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great day.